And in addition to our guests, one or two others I see in here that are usually not with us on Wednesday nights, you're in the choir. Uh, we have been going through First and Second Kings for quite a number of weeks now, trying to understand something about the Old Testament history. I think if we understand First and Second Kings, which many of the events in First and Second Kings are also uh, shadowed or mirrored in First and Second Chronicles. If we can understand these books, I think it will help us to understand some of the progression of the Old Testament. Is this okay? Is it too loud? It's perfect? Okay. And tonight we're going to be in 2 Kings chapter 5. I certainly appreciate Ricky filling in for me last week and covering chapter 4. <clears throat> Everybody got one of those study guides? Rick needs one. Drew, you got an extra? Okay. Thank you. Second Kings chapter 5, and what we want to cover tonight is the subject matter, the necessity of obedience. The necessity of obedience. Second Kings 5. Let's read verses 1 to 15 together. Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master and in high favor because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was a mighty man of valor, but he was a leper. Now the Syrians on one of their raids had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel and she worked in the service of Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, Would that my Lord were with the prophet who is in Samaria. He would cure him of his leprosy. So Naaman went in and told his Lord, Thus and so spoke the girl from the land of Israel. And the king of Israel said, Go now, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So he went, taking with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten changes of clothing. And he brought the letter to the king of Israel, which read, When this letter reaches you, know that I have sent you to Naaman my servant, that you may cure him of his leprosy. And when the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and to make alive that this man sends word to me to cure a man of his leprosy? Only consider and see how he is seeking a quarrel with me. But when Elisha the man of God heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, he said to the king, he sent to the king, saying, Why have you torn your clothes? Let him come now to me that he may know that there's a prophet in Israel. So Naaman came with his horses and chariots and stood at the door of Elisha's house. And Elisha sent a messenger to him saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times and your flesh shall be restored and you shall be clean. But Naaman was angry and went away, saying, Behold, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. Are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? 
could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage. But his servants came near and said to him, My father, it is a great word the prophet has spoken to you. Will you not do it? Has he actually said to you, Wash and be clean? So he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan according to the word of the man of God and his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child and he was clean. I'll tell you what, let's, let's just finish out the chapter. Then he returned to the man of God. He had all his company and he came and stood before him and he said, Behold, I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel, so accept now a present from your servant. But he said, as the Lord lives before whom I stand, I will receive none. And he urged him to take it, but he refused. Then Naaman said, if not, please let there be given to your servant two mule loads of earth. For from now on, your servant will not offer burnt offering or sacrifice to any god but the Lord. In this matter, may the Lord pardon your servant. When my master goes into the house of Rimon to worship there, leaning on my arm, and I bow myself in the house of Rimon, when I bow myself there, the Lord pardon your servant in this matter. He said to him, go in peace. But when Naaman had gone from him a short distance, Gehazi, the servant of Elisha, the man of God, said, See, my master has spared this Naaman Syrian and not accepting from his hand what he brought. As the Lord lives, I will run after him and get something from him. So Gehazi followed Naaman, and when Naaman saw someone running after him, he got down from the chariot to meet him and said, Is all well? And he said, All is well. My master has sent me to say, There have just now come to me from the hill country of Ephraim two young men, of the sons of the prophets. Please give them a talent of silver and two changes of clothing. And Naaman said, Be pleased to accept two talents. And he urged him and tied up two talents of silver in two bags with two changes of clothing and laid them on two of his servants. And they carried them before Gehazi. And when he came to the hill, he took them from their hand and put them in the house. And he sent the men away and they departed. He went in and stood before his master, and Elisha said to him, Where have you been, Gehazi? And he said, Your servant went nowhere. But he said to him, Did not my heart go when the man turned from his chariot to meet you? Was it a time to accept money and garments, olive orchards and vineyards, sheep and oxen, male servants and female servants? Therefore, the leprosy of Naaman shall cling to you and to your descendants forever. So he went out from his presence, a leper like snow. Now, from last week, what y'all covered, or, yeah, last week, so uh, two weeks ago. So far in chapter 4, we've seen Elisha performing various miracles. And these miracles reveal something to us about the nature and the character of God. For instance, we see in one of the miracles that God cares for the desperate, for the hopeless. As you looked at in the case of the widow whose children had been taken into slavery to work off their father's debt. 
And what did God do? God met the needs of the widow. Uh, and God met the needs of, of this lady who lost her husband and had lost her wealth. And she's about to lose her children. So God meets her needs and restores things to her that she needs. And, and then we saw God meeting the needs of the heartbroken. There was a well-to-do widow who was without a son. God gave her a son, then took that son away, and then restored him to life again. At the end of chapter 4, God was taking care of the hungry. There was a famine in the land. And God's servants, the prophets, were not immune from the effects of this famine. And so Elisha orders his servant to make a stew. And you can almost envision the prophets out of the field gathering together whatever vegetables that they can find to put in the stew. And one gathers some poisonous gourds. And so here are hungry men who immediately sense that there's a problem with the stew. In the words of the biblical writer, there's death in the pot. Well, God performs a miracle to clean up the stew. And what he ends up doing is providing for his servants in the midst of the famine. And then finally in chapter 4, there's a man bringing bread to Elisha to feed the people. It didn't seem like much, but God multiplied it, and everybody had something to eat, and there was enough left over. What's that remind you of in the New Testament? Jesus feeding the multitude, right? But folks, what's so important to see in chapter 4, we really see little snapshots of the gospel. We see God paying the debt. God imparting life. God removing the curse. And God satisfying the hungry. Don't let those things escape your notice. Let me say them again. God paying the debt, God imparting life, God removing the curse, and God satisfying the hungry. You feel like shouting yet? I hope so. Certainly what we see here is a summary of how God works. Now today as we get into chapter 5, we see God's grace being extended to a Gentile. And who was a Gentile? A Gentile was anybody who was not a Jew. To me, very clearly, we see some things happening here in, in chapter 5 that are foreshadows of what we're going to see in the New Testament even more. And that shows us how God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. But what we will see is that while it is God who works, we do indeed have to make a response. Naaman's a perfect example of somebody who has little knowledge of God, little knowledge of the ways of God. Naaman thinks God can be bought. He thinks God might simply work through doing the right kind of ritual. He's a man who in every way becomes transformed. Not only is he healed, but his whole entire demeanor is changed. And he learns the hard way that God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Now let's kind of follow the story a little bit and set the context with the characters before we actually get into the points. First of all, from verse 1, you'll see that we're introduced here to this man named Naaman. 
By the way, let me say something here about Elisha as well. Remember Elijah, who is Elisha, Elisha's mentor. Elijah is mentioned 29 times in the New Testament. Elisha is mentioned only one time in the New Testament. And guess what it is? Guess what the story is when Elisha is named? It's the story right here. It's the one we're looking at uh, tonight. About there being many, when Jesus spoke about there being many lepers in the land of Israel during the, during the days of Elisha. But Elisha was sent only to Naaman, the Syrian. Uh, again, that's the only mention of Elisha in the New Testament. No extra charge for that. I just thought you might <laughs> like to know that. But anyway, back to Naaman. Naaman was a very important man. Naaman was in charge of the armies of Aram, or Syria. Syria was the nation that bordered Israel just to the northeast of Israel. And throughout Old Testament history, Syria was one of the most pesky neighbors to Israel. Naaman, we're told, was a member of their army. Uh, in fact, he was the commander of the army. I suppose he would be sort of like today our secretary of defense. Somebody who's in the president's cabinet. That's the role that Naaman occupied. Everywhere Naaman went in Syria, he would have been labeled a hero, no doubt. He would have been recognized, and after every military victory, he would have been hailed as a hero. Likewise, we're told here that Naaman was a great and honorable man in the eyes of his master, the king of Syria. Now that tells us something about his character and nobility, right? He's a mighty man of valor. He's honorable. He's respected. Furthermore, he enjoyed success. By him, we're told, the Lord had given victory to Syria. And so here's a lost Gentile in a pagan nation whom God had nonetheless used. And that shows us something about God, doesn't it? God is even able to use unbelievers to accomplish his purposes. But over Naaman, over his life, there was a dark cloud. And what was that dark cloud? Leprosy. Here Naaman had on this prestigious uniform probably, but under that uniform, his flesh was eat up with leprosy. Leprosy was a horrible disease of the skin, although still around today, as we see right here with Don Carlson. Although it's still still around today, it's, it's rare, and it's more treatable today. In Naaman's day, it could be a death sentence in worst-case scenarios. It deadened the nerve endings so that lepers were constantly hurting themselves. The different parts of the body would literally begin to rot off and fall off, uh, usually starting with things like the, the ears, the nose, the fingers, the toes, things like that. I've, I've read that in the worst cases of leprosy in ancient days, sometimes the victims were barely even 
recognizable as human. Now that's the type of disease that Naaman had. Now we don't know how advanced his was. We do know that apparently he had been allowed to continue in his military post. And as such, he would have been mingling in society somewhat. So his, his condition was probably not too advanced yet. And so while maybe not being under a death sentence, uh, his work among the people would have been impacted. Probably a lot of people would have been afraid just to hang around him or get too close to him. But Naaman's not the only character we see in the story. In verses 2 and 3, we meet this wonderful little servant girl. She may be a servant, but folks, she is free. And what a wonderful model she is to us. She's not bitter with what all's happened to her in her life. She's a living testimony to what Jesus said in the New Testament, that we're to be kind even towards our enemies. She's been captured. She's now a servant in Naaman's household. But she's so kind. She's so gracious. And she has a message of hope for Naaman. She's God's ambassador in, in an unbelieving home. So don't overlook this little servant girl in the story. She's one of the shining lights in this chapter. She tells Naaman's wife what Naaman needs to do to find hope and healing. And Naaman's wife in turn tells Naaman who tells the king. The king says, Naaman, I want you to go. I want you to find help. And I'm going to send some stuff with you to take. But it all started with the faithfulness of this little servant girl. I remember years ago, quite a number of years ago now, telling Amy Hornbeek in our church, Amy, because you reached out to Amy Hall one day in the daycare where both of you had your kids, Amy Hall decided to visit the church. And when she visited the church in a service one Sunday morning, she gave her life to Christ. And then, when she made that decision, her husband, Dathan, came under conviction. And because he came under conviction, he got saved. When he got saved, pretty soon after that, he was called into the ministry. We ordained him for the ministry, and now he's a pastor in the northeastern section of North Carolina. But it started with the faithfulness of one. One of our members simply inviting Amy and her husband to church. And you see what God did with something small like that. Folks, it might be a little thing you do for the sake of Christ that ends up having an impact greater than anything you could ever imagine. In a time when most of the people in Israel were going to false gods and worshiping false gods, apparently her parents remained faithful to the Lord too. Yes, yes. And sought her. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So again, don't don't ever underestimate the small things you do for the sake of the gospel and what God can bring out of small things. 
You know, more and more in Christianity, pastors are having to depend on lay people to touch people in their circles of influence. Because by and large, lost families are not waking up on Sunday mornings now and saying, hey, let's get up, get ready, and go to a church somewhere. And so if we're going to reach people for Christ, it's going to be because every one of us in our circles of influence reach out to people. Right? Well, in verses 6 and 7, we meet the king of Israel, who underscores for us just how serious and hopeless a case leprosy was. The king of Syria sends Naaman with a huge sum of money, in fact, 750 pounds of silver, 150 pounds of gold, and costly garments as icing on the cake. They're thinking that they're going to have to pay for what is about to happen. And that's like people today too, right? They complicate the gospel. Trying to think they gotta, they got to do all sorts of things for God to love them and recognize them. Well, what's the king of Israel do? He panics. He recognizes that leprosy was a hopeless situation and that he's not God. He can't heal Naaman, who this neighboring king has sent to him. And so his conclusion is this neighboring king must be trying to use this occasion to pick a fight with me. Well, I want you to see first of all tonight for verses 8 to 10, the events of our lives give us an opportunity for obedience to God. The events of our lives give us an opportunity for obedience to God. Notice verse 8 says, But when Elisha the man of God heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, he sent to the king, saying, why have you torn your clothes? Let him come now to me that he may know that there's a prophet in Israel. So Naaman came with his horses and chariots and stood at the door of Elisha's house. And Elisha sent a messenger to him saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times and your flesh shall be restored and you shall be clean. Folks, God doesn't operate out of a vacuum. It's through life. It's through the circumstances of our lives that we learn about God, and it's through these circumstances of our lives that we are to follow God, that we are to obey Him. You know, it's not hard to be a Christian at church, but what about in life? What about at that tough work situation that you face? What about in a situation where you might be tempted to cut corners? What about in a family? Maybe you get very little support for being a Christian. What about when you get a doctor's report that may not be all that good? It's in situations like that, everyday situations in our lives where we're being tested and we have the opportunity to obey God or not. It's the... Okay. When I say God doesn't operate in a vacuum, it's just situations, relationships, things that we do in our lives every day. That's where we're to practice obedience to God. I mean, like, you should, you shouldn't, like, wait till something Yeah, ask, ask God, God, what would you have me to do in this relationship that's difficult? How can I help this person see Christ? 
God, how can I glorify your name in this situation and point others to you? So just those normal, everyday situations in life, that's where we need to obey God. Uh, Naaman's everyday experience was the pain and suffering of his leprosy. A little, a little of his life is probably being poured out every day. Every day, his life's clock, so to speak, is ticking. And here Naaman is in that condition. He is presented with an invitation to obey God. God's got a message for Naaman. But what's Naaman got to do? He's got to obey God. He's got to listen to God's prophet. What did God wish Naaman to learn? He wanted Naaman to learn that the God of Israel was the only true and living God. All these pagan gods that he had served back in Syria had not been able to heal him or help his condition. But there was a God in Israel, the God of the Bible, who was able to intervene for him and help him and bring hope to his hopeless life. But he was going to have to listen to what God was saying. And he was going to have to follow the instructions he was given. Secondly, I want you to see from verses 9 to 12, lay aside your plans and trust God's plans. Lay aside your plans and trust God's plans. Read with me beginning in verse 9. So, so Naaman came with his horses and chariots and stood at the door of Elisha's house and Elisha sent a messenger to him saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times and your flesh shall be restored and you shall be clean." But Naaman was angry and went away saying, Behold, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. Or not, Abana and far part of the rivers of Damascus better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned away and went away in a rage. Naaman wanted to do things his own way. The place that he mentions there says, uh, wave his hand over the place. Mm -hmm. Is he talking about the place in his body where he Yes, where the leprosy was. Wave, wave his, you know, he's expecting Elisha to come out some kind of, you know, ritual, wave his hands over his leprosy. You're saying that if it's only one place of his body, he's waving his hand, he could have been at the beginning stages of this and not really. Could have been. Could have been. Yeah. But, but Naaman, Naaman's thinking, what? This sounds crazy. I could have done such and such instead. You know, he, he thought he had this whole thing figured out. I love what Donald Gray Barnhouse, a great preacher of another era, used to say. He said, everyone has the privilege of going to heaven God's way or going to hell their own way. Naaman is furious that Elisha doesn't even bother to come out to him. You can see it now. Here's Naaman, this important guy in Syria, the Secretary of Defense, and he's got this entourage with him. 
And they in their chariots, they ride up to Elisha's house, this caravan. I mean, it's pretty important to everybody. All, all the people around it. Here's somebody important. Here's some kind of dignitary riding up to Elisha's home. Probably people are whispering, who, who is this? Anybody know who this is? Naaman was probably accustomed to that sort of thing, being an important man back home. Probably he had parades in his honor every time he helped his country win a battle. And what's he thinking? He's thinking he's going to get to Elisha's house. Elisha's going to come out and he's going to go through some kind of elaborate ritual. You know. There'll be a lot of pomp and circumstance. There'll be a lot of ceremony. The prophet's going to wave his arm this way and that way. And he's going to say a couple of words and a couple of high-sounding religious formulas and all that kind of stuff. But what's Elisha do? He doesn't even come out to see Naaman. He sends a messenger out. How dare Elisha treat me this way? Does he not know who I am? Naaman might have been thinking. He's probably got a lot of pride. And what's the messenger say? Go and wash seven times in the Jordan. That made no sense to Naaman. First of all, the Jordan, the Jordan's just a little, except in flood stage, the Jordan is just a little muddy river. Really, the Jordan's a pretty insignificant little river. Now, it's a very important landmark on the pages of the Bible because when Joshua led the people of Israel into the promised land. They crossed the Jordan. They pick up stones, one for each tribe, and set up a monument commemorating that day for future generations so they could tell their children and grandchildren how God delivered them out of Egypt, brought them through the wilderness, led them into the promised land. I mean, the Jordan has a lot of significance in the Bible, but I mean, as far as a river being compared to other rivers, there's not much to it. And dipped seven times. What's that mean? But you see, this was God's word through Elisha. And to a man, it to a man who didn't know God, it probably made no sense at all. Why couldn't I dip in one of the better rivers back home? But folks, the river wasn't the issue. What was the issue? Obedience. Doing what God said. But again, what a wonderful illustration of how people are today. Trusting Christ, for some people, may not seem to make any sense. Maybe they think they've got to do something to save themselves. Maybe they've got to give something first, or they've got to reform their lives first. They, they need to do this, this, and this, and then one day maybe... After I've done enough good, maybe God will love me enough to save me. And, and the gospel message that you find like in John 3.16, for instance, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. To some people that just sounds too easy.
We've got to remember what Isaiah 55 says. God says, my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. You remember anybody in the New Testament that approached Jesus and Jesus told him how to follow him? And he just turned away because he wouldn't do it. The rich young ruler. Yeah. The third thing I want you to see tonight. The battle for obedience and its ultimate rewards. Verse 11 and then verses 13 and 15. But Naaman was angry, went away saying, Behold, I thought he would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. Now down to verse uh, 13. But his servants came near and said to him, My father, it's a great word the prophet has spoken to you. Will you not do it? Has he actually said to you, Wash and be clean? So he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan according to the word of the man of God and his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. Then he returned to the man of God, he and all his company, and he came and stood before him, and he said, Behold, I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel, so now, so accept now a present from your servant. What was Naaman's desire? He was to be healed of his leprosy, right? God was willing to do it. Because Naaman initially didn't like what God, through Elisha's servant, was suggesting he do. Naaman was going to turn away in unbelief and in anger. Thank God that Naaman had some common sense servants with him. And they say, Master, I mean, just think about what he's told you to do. Come on. It's not hard. It's not going to cost you anything. And they, and they prevail on it. Right? He kind of comes to his senses. Kind of reminds me of what God says in Isaiah 1. Come, let us reason together. You know? What if the story would have ended in verse 12? It would have been the end. Naaman would have probably died a leper. It would have been his own fault. What if he would have only dipped five times? What if he would have only dipped six times? He would have died a leper. But he listened to his servants. Again, just shows you the difference people can make in other people's lives. Here's men who, like Naaman, they don't even know the Lord. They're not saved, and they're encouraging Naaman to do what God's prophet is, is, is saying. Naaman dipped seven times, he was healed. Obedience to God was Naaman's key to life and victory. And folks, what's this telling us? It's the same with you and me today. Am I here tonight telling you that obedience to God is always going to be easy? It's always going to be easy and it's always going to make perfect sense what you're supposed to do. Is that the message? No. Sometimes it might be the most difficult thing you're called on to do. You might have hatred and animosity towards somebody and you know that God would have you go get right with that person. 
That's the hardest thing for you to do. Because you think, does God not know what they've done to me? There may be something else that you like. I don't know if I can do that or not. <clears throat> but the issue is, are we going to listen to God's word? Because we, you see, today, we have God's word in this book. Are we going to read it and learn it and see God's voice on the pages in this book? And are we going to listen to it and obey it? Or are we going to try to come up with our own plans? Our own plans that have never worked in our lives in the first place. D.L. Moody, the great evangelist before Billy Graham, said, Naaman lost his temper, then he lost his pride, and then he lost his leprosy. Moody went on to say, usually in conversion, all of us follow a pretty similar path. Now what's Naaman want to do? He's healed now. He's well. What's he want to do in verse 15? He wants to give Elisha something. Verse 16, Elisha refuses. He, he didn't want Naaman misunderstanding anything later on and, and thinking that the goodness of God can be purchased or bought. Next, Naaman comes up with a pretty strange request, but I want you to notice that Elisha doesn't forbid it. Naaman wants to take some dirt back home. Now, obviously, his faith is still very immature. God is a God is the, the Lord, the God of the Bible is the Lord of all the nations, right? He doesn't, we don't have to go and get soil from Israel and bring back and put in our yard, right? Kind of reminds me today when Americans travel to Israel to see the Holy Land. You know what's all over the place over there that you can purchase and bring back home with you? Little bottles of water that's said to be from the Jordan River. Do you need to do something like that? No. No. But Elisha allows this. Perhaps he knows what a testimony this is going to end up being back in, in Syria. You know, Naaman might, people say, where's this dirt from? Oh, i got to tell you what happened to me in Israel. And the God of Israel is the true and living God. Our God's back here that we've been serving aren't the true God. So it could have been for that reason he allows it. But the real point is, Naaman has gone from a pagan to a saved man, and from a saved man, he wants to be a genuine worshiper of God. He's transformed. God didn't heal Naaman, so Naaman could just go back to Syria, the same old man. Naaman's going to go back a different man, a changed man. And Christians need to understand this today too. We aren't God doesn't save us so then we can just simply go back to how we were living before we got saved. God saves us. So now our lives can be a daily offering to Him. God, what would you have me to do? How should I follow you? Naaman's got another strange request. Verse 18. Look at verse 18. When my master goes into the house of Rimon to worship there, leaning on my arm, and I bow myself in the house of Rimon, 
when I bow myself into that house, the Lord pardon your servant in this matter. Naaman recognizes when he gets back to Syria, his master is going to be worshiping in one of these pagan temples. And Naaman's going to be expected to go in there with him. Naaman's saying, may the Lord pardon me in this. Elisha tells him to go in peace. Now we might have wanted Elisha to say no, but Elisha recognizes that in time, probably, over the course of days, months, weeks back in Syria, hopefully he can end up having some influence with his master. Kind of reminds me of Daniel in the book of Daniel. Daniel was put into a pagan court to serve a pagan king. And he was to do a good job serving in that pagan court to a pagan king. But he was to show that king and everybody around that king that he was a different man, that he served the true and the living God. And over time, Daniel made a difference in the world. And I think that's the hope here, that over time, Naaman, as he has to go back and do some things that his master tells him to do, that over time, though, he's going to be able to have some influence. Mm -hmm. That example with Daniel was another example of uh, one of God's children being obedient in a very difficult situation. Yes. And because of obedience, you know, he was promoted and had a great influence. Exactly. Yes. Sounds like to me he's saying here that Paul's. Uh, the king, I guess, that is going to be going into this home a house of worship mm -hmm. and he's going to be leaning on his arm. Mm -hmm. It sounds to me like he's letting him know that, know that I'm not worshiping that God, it's but like I'm showing respect for my master or yes. my king or whatever. Yeah. That's, that's what I got. Yeah. And it even makes you wonder if his master maybe was in some kind of aged help he needed that he to lean on. Yeah. And what, what's a lesson to us in this? You might have to work in a very ungodly office around ungodly people. Right? But if you're faithful to God there and you remain true to God, over time, hopefully, you can have an influence in that place. Now, don't just fall in with that crowd and start doing what they're doing. You be true to your new faith. You're a follower of Christ now. But nonetheless, you might have to continue to serve in that office with the boss who is anything but a Christian. I mean, he's the diametrical opposite of being a Christian. And... He, you may have to do uh, uh, be there in the midst of people that you can't agree with what's going on. But you remain faithful, and over time, hopefully people will see a difference in your life. Right? Uh, Christians, you look all through the Old Testament, the people of God, then the New Testament Christians, 
Sometimes they, they have to be in very difficult environments. Sometimes Christians today, we almost have the attitude today that whether it's in the country or whether it's in our town or whether in our office place or whether in our school, it's supposed to be easy for us. And we have to recognize that for the early Christians, the first 250 years of the early Christians, many of them were in situations where they even had to die for their faith. It wasn't until Constantine came along and declared Christianity a legal religion in the Roman Empire that the Christians got any kind of relief or peace. So don't expect that you're always going to be in the easiest environment. But in that environment, you're to be true to the Lord. They were lights to their world the wrong way. You what? They were lights to their world the wrong way. Yeah. When they were set on fire. Oh, yeah. In the gardens. Oh, yeah. They, Nero literally they, they dipped them in tar and tied them to poles. He had these beautiful outdoor gardens, and at night he would stand them up on these tall poles with covered in tar and light them on fire and let them be torches for his gardens. Yep. If you're going to be a light to your world, you what? You gotta, if you're going to be a light to your world, you got to expect some pain yep. sometimes. Now, let me say fourthly tonight, a sad ending for a surprising character. Verses 20 to 27. Gehazi. Gehazi is an example that you can be around the things of God and still not understand. Gehazi lets greed get a hold of his heart. He cannot believe that Elisha didn't take anything from Naaman. So what's he do? He concocts a lie. He chases Naaman down. Oh, after you left, a couple of prophets came. We, Elisha does need what you were going to offer him. Concocts a lie. And again, look at, look at what we see in, in Naaman. Instead of resenting Elisha's servant coming out to him, he gets down out of his chariot, goes to the servant, asks him if all is well. He ends up giving Gehazi double what Gehazi asked for. What's that show you? That shows you how grateful he is at what has happened to him. Uh, Gehazi then goes on to learn what? You can't sin in secret. You can't sin in secret. Verse 26 gives an important lesson to us. Elisha said, Did not my heart go when the man uh, turned from his chariot to meet you? Gehazi has been found out. He's been discovered. And what happens to Gehazi? He ends up having the leprosy that Naaman had been cured of. And so what do we have in this chapter? We have a very surprising recipient of God's grace, Naaman from another country, 
And we have a very surprising rejecter of God's grace, Elisha's servant, Gehazi, who saw God do all these wonderful things, and yet, because of greed in his heart, he sins. So true to life today, some of the most unlikely people experience God's grace. And some of the most likely people that you would think would come to know God and serve Him out of gratitude, turn away from God and walk away. What's some takeaways tonight? Some lessons. Number one, God's grace is available to those who trust Him regardless of the hopelessness of their condition. God's grace is available to those who trust Him regardless of the hopelessness of their condition. Second lesson here, faith involves acting in obedience to God's Word. Folks, faith isn't something we just say with our lips. Faith's got to be seen in our lives if it's real. A third lesson, human substitutes and solutions are useless. Remember, Naaman wanted, he said, I could have done this, I could have done that. Why do I have to do this? Human substitutes and solutions are useless. We need to obey God's word in God's way. And then a last lesson tonight. We can be far from God and experience His grace. And we can be close to God's work and miss His grace. Now, any comments you want to make, anything you've noticed in the chapter that maybe I missed that you'd kind of like to add? Who was king of, of Israel at that time? Who, who was the king of Israel? Uh, uh, one of Ahaz's sons. His second son. I've tried to figure this out on my own and I can't, so maybe you can help me. <laughs> but Israel was defeated by Syria, correct? They were defeated by the Assyrians. Okay, yeah. Assyrians, not yeah. Syria. Okay. And we're gonna, we'll get to that in 2 Kings. Okay. See, if, if you were looking... Let's say this little box here were Israel and Judah, the Mediterranean Sea over here, and Egypt down here. Syria would be up here. Assyria would be over here. I was just wondering if Naaman had been the captain of the army that had defeated them, but it was a different country. Yes. So, gotcha. Thank yes. you. And that, that's an important clarification that Syria and Assyria are separate countries. Thinking that by the time that uh, man arrives at the king's office and the king um, is suddenly caught off guard by his request, you know, um, I'm guessing that being a military person myself, I'm not going to be letting some commander from another nation be walking around my country mm-hmm. with this big, huge entourage of people. Probably soldiers are on to protect him. 
right. without sending my own army to escort them right. and to watch them. And, uh, so I'm thinking that the civilians even of that place are seeing what's the commotion. I mean, I can see this thing growing and growing and growing <coughs> till they get to, you know, uh, Elijah's, you know, home. I, I, I mean, it must have been a massive number of people, mm -hmm. just onlookers, onlookers plus two armies now. Sure. By this time and stuff. I mean, because yeah. he was scared. I mean. But it shows you, too, probably some of the respect that Elisha has gained by now as being a prophet of God in the land. That here's the king of Israel saying, why is this other king, neighboring king, sending his army commander to me? I can't do anything about it. And Elisha says to his king, no problem, send him to me. And the king sends him on to Elisha. So Elisha's garnered some respect as being a man of God. That the king would say, okay, good, I'm going to let you handle this one. You know? Do you think God told Elisha what was happening with the king? I think so, yeah. 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 I, like, I like also the how God used the humble people in man's life to um, bring about the proper response yep. to Israel from Israel who worshiped God and uh, exactly. was listened to. Yeah. And then, of course, you know, later on, his uh, on. Um, his, his own, Naaman's own servants yeah. right. tried to reason with him and talk sense into him. Yeah. So yeah. God was using the simple things of this world. Just simple people around. Uh, yeah. Just ordinary people can end up having a tremendous amount of influence. Yeah. So whenever you said um, earlier that we were you were talking about the martyrs of the first 200, 250 years of the mm -hmm. church. Yeah, see, it went into the until like into the three hundreds, like three twenty, three twenty three, three twenty five, when uh, Constantine issued the edict that Christianity was legal. That's that's how long it took for Christians to get out from underneath a lot of the heavy persecution of the Roman Empire. So what I was thinking about that, though, was that even that would not have taken place had people not stood up for what was right and done what was right. And, you know, sometimes we never see the results or the benefit of what we, when we choose to do the right thing, yeah. it always makes a difference. If nothing else, it makes a difference in our life. Yeah. But it will always make a difference, and we just may not ever see that down the road someplace there's a Constantine that is going to you know really make a difference and we influenced someone that influenced him just like you were talking about Amy Hornby telling Amy Amy Hall Hall uh -huh. uh, inviting her to church and yeah. then just that simple act that she did it was the right thing to do God laid it on her heart she was obedient and now we have not just um, Amy Hall coming to church, but her husband is a preacher and he's influencing all these people. Mm -hmm. And it just always matters whenever yeah. we are obedient. Yeah. And you know, the writer of Hebrews makes that, that very point in chapter 11 when he names all the people out of, out of the Old Testament who were courageous and faithful, many of whom, whom suffered and died for their faith. They never in their lifetimes 
saw the reward. But the writer of Hebrews is saying they did see the reward. When they got to the other side, they seen the reward. And, uh, but they never saw it in their lifetime. But they did what was right. And they were faithful. And now they enjoy their reward in heaven. I think that doing what's right just gives you a peace in your heart anyway. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, I know it does. You know, even if you're having to undergo persecution, you put yourself in the way of God's blessings whenever you obey Him. And when you step outside of His obedience and His will, you put yourself in a way where you're going to be disciplined. And that's no fun. Plus, the ripple effect of all the other people that you affect, either for good, if you do good, or either for evil, if you choose to sin. Yeah. 